When I was 14, just a, a freshman in high school, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. But I soon discovered a problem. <laughs> Whenever I was with the folks over at Youth for Christ meetings, I could be, I wanted to talk about my faith, and I could be open about it, and whenever I was with my buddies back in homeroom that I'd been hung out with for years, I couldn't. I would just kind of clam up, go along with whatever they were doing. And I realized, I need, I need something, I need a power I don't have. I need guts to be the same kind of person, to live the same way in every place I am. And I, I wonder if you are in a situation right now in your life where you need to do something and you don't have the power to do it. You know you need God's power if you're going to be able to do this. Think about what that might be for you. Maybe there's a relationship you're in where you need to say something and you haven't found the courage to say it. Maybe it's to forgive a person for what they did and really continue on in that journey of forgiveness. I don't know what it may be for you, but friends, I can tell you, every day, you and I need the power of God. We do. We need his presence. You know, as a pastor, I've had the chance to serve a lot of Christians who believe in God, but it, uh, it's kind of like Bette Midler saying, he's watching us from a distance for them, and they don't uh, necessarily feel, maybe you relate to this, but maybe bad church experiences or temperament or trauma, a lot of things can go into that, but they don't have this deep sense that Christ lives in me. They, they aren't robustly experiencing what the Bible talks about. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I have a living, powerful God dwelling in me. It's astonishing. Sometimes people come to my office and want to talk about why they're seriously thinking about leaving Christianity. And I'll ask them, what, you know, what's led up to this? What, what's brought you to this point? And sometimes it's because they've experienced a Christianity that's intellectually narrow, or it's politically narrow, or artistically narrow, or whatever. But sometimes it's because it's experientially narrow. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's been a Christianity that's mostly about doctrine, or mostly about rules, and going through the motions. And I think I surprise them sometimes when I go, you know that Christianity you're thinking of abandoning? I would too. That's not the deal, right? Huh. Christianity is meant to be an immersion in the very life of God. You should be filled with his power and saturated with his presence. So where are you tonight? Are you hungry for God? Do you know you need him? Are you thirsty for more than what you're currently, you know, enjoying with the Lord? Do you want to be filled and refilled and refilled? And I know as a believer, you're, you're filled with the Spirit, but do you need to be refilled with His presence and His power? I do. 
And I don't think our hearts are going to be satisfied with anything less. And so if that's where you are tonight, then I've got good news for you. (laughs) That what you and I most long for, Jesus wants us to have. He wants you to. And I think the best way I can lead you to this is to start at the very beginning of the story of Jesus where Mark starts his biography of Jesus this way. Mark 1, verse 1. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. If what we're experiencing of Jesus Christ is not good news, something went wrong with our version of the story. And Mark continues, verse 2. It began, just as the prophet Isaiah had written, Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He's a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. Now notice this. Verse 1 is the good news about Jesus. And verse 2 is this messenger was John the Baptist. It's not a sidetrack. We can't begin to understand what's good news about Jesus unless we understand John, who actually is his cousin. John's mentioned in every one of the four Gospels, right at or right near the beginning. And it turns out that the good news of Jesus really starts as a tale of two cousins. John and Jesus, they're they're two cousins, and I want to lay out ten similarities they have, because it'll help us see more clearly one big difference. So in the spirit of David Letterman, any of you who remember old school late night, let's count down the top 10 list of how John and Jesus are similar. All right, similarity number 10. Like I said, they're related. John is his cousin, just six months older. Number nine, both John and Jesus were prophesied that they would come. Their lives are actually described with specificity hundreds of years before either one is born. It's kind of mind-boggling that way. The prophet Malachi, 400 years ahead of the time, said, look, I'm sending my messenger, John, ahead of you, Jesus, the Messiah, and he will prepare your way. And 700 years ahead of time, Isaiah looked forward by the power of the Spirit and said, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, John. Clear the road for him, Jesus. All right, similarity number eight. Both have miracle births. John's parents are like grandparent age. They're way too old to be having a child. You know, uh, our daughter just had our first grandchild, as you know, and so you're going to hear about grandchildren probably more than you. (laughs) Fair warning, okay. So this week, I was thinking about John's unusual birth, and I said to Karen, I said, how would you like to be nursing now? Instead of our daughter, we both burst out laughing. It's like, but that's exactly what happened in John's life. And of course, Jesus similarly was born of a biological impossibility. Similarity number seven, both have angels announce their pregnancy. Uh, The only difference is, John's dad doesn't believe it and has to hush up for nine months. And Jesus' mom believes it. Similarity number six, both John and Jesus spend time in the wilderness. That's a part of how they got prepared. 
Some of you, if you've been in the wilderness and you're like, you know, and if you've lived through it long enough and come out on the other side, you know that was God's hard preparation school. Well, John was actually born into a priest's home. He could have grown up very kind of in a cultured way with fancy priest robes and all that, and instead he's way out in the wilderness, way beyond any cell phone signal. And he's, he's wearing clothes made from camel hair, which is rough. It'd be kind of like seeing somebody today and you go, hey, uh, those overalls you're wearing, are those deerskin? Yep. Looks like you made them yourself. Yep. You know, and you'd be going, who is this person? They're munching on a piece of venison jerky. <laughs> but the wilderness got him ready. Similarity five. Both John and Jesus come preaching. They're, they got a message. They got something to say. And you know what? It's the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. John preaches. Jesus preaches. Similarity four. Both John and Jesus attract followers, apprentices, disciples, people who want to be with them, near them, learn from them, follow them. In fact, a lot of Jesus' first apostles, like Andrew, started out in John's movement. And then John kept pointing them over to Jesus, and a bunch of them came over to Jesus' coterie, I guess you'd say, and followed him. All right, similarity number three. Both make baptizing a big part of what they do. Now, as one scholar puts it, John challenged people to do something that no leader of Israel had ever asked before. Baptism is not even mentioned in the Old Testament commands of Moses. The only people who got baptized at this time are pagan Gentiles who decide to convert to Judaism. So they may need to wash off some worldly filth, but a lifelong Jew? John's hearers are in the mindset of, I don't know who you're talking to. Because we're God's people. We don't need cleansing. And John says, yes, you do. Just as much or more. (laughs) And we may forget that though Jesus himself does not baptize, his disciples did. In fact, very quickly, they're they're baptizing way more people than John. So baptizing and preaching were a big part of what they do. Similar number two, similarity. Both John and Jesus speak out for justice. John says, why is it that that poor person has no coat and you've got two? Jesus, you know, sees poor people getting money gouged for a religious reason, and he knows how to make a whip and use it. You know, I find that filmmakers, they always want to portray John as this, like, wild-eyed guy with a scraggly beard, and he's apocalyptic, and he seems, like, slightly crazy, and you have no idea what he's going to do. Meanwhile, Jesus just kind of floats into the scene, very serene, well-groomed, the kind of person you would want as your therapist, you know? (laughs) You know what? They both brought the fire. Now, uh, similarity number 10 I guess one. I'm counting down. One. Both John and Jesus have thousands of people who come and hear them. They, they draw the crowd. In fact, John is so popular that, did you know he had disciples who continued to follow him for 75 to 100 years? After his death. That's what an influence he had. So 
So in at least these 10 ways, John and Jesus are remarkably similar. But I say all that to set up this gigantic difference. This difference is what matters for us who long for more of the power and the presence of God. And here's what it is. The difference is what they baptize in. John says, I baptize you with water. Yeah, we know you do, John. But the one you really want him to get to know is the one who baptizes you with the holy, life-giving spirit of God. That's what you need. John's saying, in effect, I pour muddy river water over the outside of you. It's good, it's important, because it's a part of your repentance and preparation. But you know what? How would you like to have the clear, bubbling spring inside of you of the life, presence, and power of God, and it doesn't stop, it just keeps going? He is the better baptizer. And John says, that difference right there, he's so much greater than I am because of that, that I can't even untie his shoes. I'm not worthy of that. Or as we might say today, I'm not worthy to take out his trash. Friends, what you and I most need is what Jesus has. He's the only one who can fill us with the presence and life-giving power of God. Now, let's think about what difference that makes. And let's walk through a typical day and you see. Okay, Monday at 8.30 a.m., you show up at work and you see this coworker who is annoying. They just are. Maybe you need them for this project that you're working on, but working with them is like twice as hard as it really needs to be. Like when you're in meetings with them, you keep wanting to type careerbuilder.com because either you need a new job or they do, right? Okay, come on, we all know this, this person. Now, without the Holy Spirit, what are you gonna do? You're gonna gripe about them at lunch to your coworkers. And, depending on your temperament, you're either gonna strategize how you can totally avoid them, work around them, or, you're going to think about how you can basically defend against them or kind of corner them in their influence. Now, consider what happens with the Holy Spirit when you and I show up to work and we have the Holy Spirit. The coworker is still annoying, okay? But did you know the Holy Spirit can shed abroad his love in your heart? Have you had, I don't know if you've experienced this, I have, where somebody I would not normally be able to love, God gives me the love. You start to find an inner patience that you didn't think you had. In fact, you knew you didn't have. And all of a sudden, you maybe say a silent prayer for them as you're in this meeting with them. You just go, Lord, they must have come through a lot to get to this point in their life. Have mercy. And when that name comes up at lunch, you roll your eyes less. Because what's happening? The Spirit of God is saying, you don't have to live out of your own meager reserves of patience and love. You have something deeper in me. All right, now 4.30, your roommate or sister-in-law or spouse or someone calls you and asks you to do something 
maybe remind you that they'd already asked you to do something, and the way they do it, it just irks you. Now, without the Holy Spirit, what do we do? We focus on how insensitive that was, how emblematic it is of everything that's wrong in this relationship. We brood on it, and cracks in the relationship start to grow. But with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit does this thing called convict, meaning go McFly, right? And tell you something that maybe you're not getting on your own. And, and maybe the Holy Spirit says, you know, this kind of started with the last call. You were kind of cranky. And so they came in a little more amped up than normal. And then the Holy Spirit may give you the courage to call them back and say, you know what, I'm sorry. That last call was not that great, and I own it. I'm sorry. And all of a sudden, instead of cracks widening and fissures opening up more, they start to come together. Amazing. It's like the Holy Spirit is, how do I describe it? It's like, instead of hiring a personal trainer, you have a free personal trainer living inside you to help you do it. Now, friends, I need that. I need that. All right, last Last scenario, 9.30 at night, you're alone in the house. And for some reason, that's hitting you. It's hard. Maybe you've lost a loved one and you just miss their voice. You miss their quirky sense of humor. You even are missing the annoying things they do. Or maybe you've been on your own for years and, and sometimes that's fine, and, but sometimes you hit the wall. Without the Holy Spirit, what happens? You start to feel overwhelmed by it all, right? Or maybe feelings of self-pity begin to wash, wash over you. And you just think, man, this isn't fair. You feel kind of cheated by God or bitter about it. And you pull away from God. Now, what changes with the precious, life-giving Holy Spirit inside us? It's still hard. And you'll still feel lonely. But, and this is hard to explain, you start to feel more at peace. A peace that actually doesn't make sense given your situation. That's what the Bible calls a peace that passes understanding. It doesn't make sense. You don't know why you would have peace right now or start to be developing it and feeling it coming into you when there's no outward reason why you should. You know, once I, I remember I, I went, I was sitting in a bay in an emergency room over here at CDH. I was not doing well. I didn't know what was going on. I was there. Uh, for some reason, they weren't letting Karen come back. I can't remember why. And... Um, I was feeling very scared and very alone. And then they put a hospital gown on me and I was feeling scared, alone, and really exposed and vulnerable. And I was swinging my feet off the, sitting off the gurney, kind of like rhythmically out of fear and boredom. And I had this remarkable sense that Jesus was with me. Actually, the way I experienced it, for what that's worth, 
is I sensed that he was standing right here, sort of at my side and just slightly behind, and his hand was on my shoulder. And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to be okay. And, and ultimately, yes, I was. Now, many days, my sense of Jesus' presence with me is not that palpable. That was a special gift and grace when I particularly needed it. But you know what was going on? Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's going to remind you of everything I've told you. And I think the Holy Spirit was reminding me that Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I can't forsake you. I don't do it. And bless the Lord, I needed it. You know, some Christians are like those Christians in the book of Acts where Paul shows up and goes, what baptism did you guys have? And they go, the baptism of John. It's possible to have like the functional equivalent of the baptism of John in which you know about repentance, you know about confession. And yes, the Holy Spirit lives in you, but all of that was to prepare you for the full saturation of life in the Spirit of God. That's what it's about. The Bible says, and it's a command, be filled with the Spirit. What's that mean? It means, because the Spirit's in you, it means be ever more open. Ask for more of God. The same disciples who got filled with the Spirit in Acts 2 came back in Acts 4. They needed more. Are we going to settle for anything less? I want to be able to say it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and I know you do too I want to have just a little bit of time for you to pray and just simply and clearly in your own heart tell Jesus where you are about all this if you're ready for more of him more of his power and presence tell him that ask for it Uh, John, why don't you come on up and play a song for this time?